Section 7 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 5, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine Parr, Chapter 2, Part 4. After Queen Catherine had been the wife of her beloved Seymour some months, there was a prospect of her becoming a mother. Her raptures at the anticipation of a blessing which had been denied to all of her other marriages carried her beyond the bounds of discretion, and her husband was no less transported than herself. The feelings of paternity with them amounted to passion. During a brief separation, while Seymour was at court, vainly soliciting of his brother the restoration of Queen Catherine's property, among which not only the late king's gifts, but those of her mother, were unjustly detained, he writes in a very confidential and loving strain to his teeming consort, after my humble commendations and thanks for your letter as i was perplexed heretofore with unkindness apprehending i should not have justice in all my causes from those that i thought would have been partial to me even so the receiving of your letter revived my spirits partly for that i do perceive you be armed with patience howsoever the matter may fall but chiefest here he proceeds to exult in fierce hopes that his expected son should god give him life to live as long as his father will revenge his wrongs now continues he to put you in some hope again this day a little before the receiving your letter i have spoken to my lord somerset whom i have so well handled that he is somewhat qualified and although i am in no hopes thereof yet i am in no despair i have also broken to him for your mother's gift he makes answer that at the finishing of the matter you shall either have your own again or else some recompense as ye shall be content withal i spake to him of your going down into the country on wednesday who was sorry thereof trusting that i would be here all to-morrow to hear what the frenchman will do but on monday at dinner i trust to be with you as for the frenchmen i have no mistrust that they shall be any let or hindrance of my going with you this journey or any of my continuing there with your highness. Thus, till that time, I bid your highness most heartily well to fare, and thank you for your news, which were right heartily welcome to me. He then expresses his wishes that both the queen and his expected progeny, whom he insists is to be a boy, may be kept in health, with good diet and walking, and concludes in these words. And so I bid my most dear and well-beloved wife most heartily well to fare from westminster this saturday the ninth of june your highness's most faithful loving husband t seymour the queen was then at hanworth one of the royal manors belonging to her dower from whence seymour escorted her to his principal baronial residence sudley castle the jealousy with which the duke of somerset regarded his brother the admiral operated to prevent as far as he could the slightest intercourse between him and their royal nephew the young king the admiral however who was bent on superseding somerset in the office of protector contrived to keep up a secret correspondence with edward and to supply him with money of which he was kept almost destitute one of the agents of this correspondence was john fowler a gentleman of edward's privy chamber the following letter shows how vigilantly the young king was beset and the jealous care taken by somerset and his satellites 
to prevent his writing to that beloved stepmother to whom his heart yearned with not less than filial tenderness john fowler to my lord admiral i most humbly thank your lordship for your letter dated the fifteenth of this present which letter i showed to the king's majesty and whereas in my last letter to your lordship i wrote unto you if his grace could get any spare time his grace would write a letter to the queen's grace and to you his highness desires your lordship to pardon him for his grace is not half a quarter of an hour alone but in such leisure as his grace had his majesty hath written here enclosed his commendations to the queen's grace and to your lordship that he is so much bound to you that he must needs remember you always and as his grace may have time you shall well perceive by such small lines of recommendations with his own hand enclosed within fowler's letters are the royal notes alluded to written by edward's own hand on torn and shabby scraps of paper betraying both the scarcity of that article in the royal escritory and the stealthy manner in which they were penned the first is a mysterious request for money addressed to his uncle my lord send me per latimer as much as ye think good and deliver it to fowler edward the second of these small lines is my lord i thank you and i pray you to have commended me to the queen there is in the context of fowler's letter an allusion to queen catherine's situation with a friendly wish for the birth of the son of whom both parents were so fondly desirous he says my lady of somerset is brought to bed of a goodly boy and i trust in almighty god the queen's grace shall have another fowler's letter is dated july nineteenth from hampton where the young king then was seymour's great object was to get a letter written by king edward complaining of the arbitrary conduct of the protector and the restraint in which he was kept by him edward had actually consented to write the letter which the admiral was to lay before the parliament but before this could be done the plot was betrayed to the protector the admiral was called before the council to answer for his proceedings he defied them but when he was threatened with imprisonment in the tower he made submissions to his brother a hollow reconciliation took place for the present and eight hundred pounds per annum was added to his appointments by the protector in the hope of conciliating him as long as queen catherine lived the admiral was too powerful for his foes perhaps he did not sufficiently appreciate her value even in a political and worldly view till it was too late the residence of the princess elizabeth under their roof was fatal to the wedded happiness of seymour and catherine the queen forgetful that a blooming girl in her fifteenth year was no longer a child had imprudently encouraged the admiral to romp with her royal stepdaughter in her presence mrs ashley the princess elizabeth's governess in her deposition before the privy council gives a strange picture of the coarse manners of the times in which such proceedings could be tolerated in a palace and with royal ladies at chelsea after my lord thomas seymour was married to the queen he would come many mornings into the said lady elizabeth's chamber before she was ready and sometimes before she did rise and if she were up he would bid her good morrow and ax how she did and strike her on the back familiarly and so go forth to his chamber and sometimes go through to her maidens and play with them 
and if the princess were in bed he would put open the curtains and bid her good morrow and she would go further in the bed and one morning he tried to kiss the princess in her bed and this deponent was there and bade him go away for shame at hanworth for two mornings the queen catherine parr was with him and they both tickled my lady elizabeth in her bed another time at hanworth he romped with her in the garden and cut her gown being black cloth into a hundred pieces and when mrs ashley came up and chid lady elizabeth she answered she could not strive withal for the queen held her while the lord admiral cut the dress another time lady elizabeth heard the master key unlock and knowing his lord admiral would come in ran out of her bed to her maidens and then went behind the curtain of her bed and my lord tarried a long time in hopes she would come out mrs ashley could not tell how long she mrs ashley was told these things were complained of and that the lady elizabeth was evil spoken of then the lord admiral swore god's precious soul i will tell my lord protector how i am slandered and i will not leave off for i mean no evil at seymour place when the queen slept there he did use a while to come up every morning in his nightgown and slippers when he found my lady elizabeth up and at her book then he would look in at the gallery door and bid her good morrow and so go on his way and the deponent told my lord it was an unseemly sight to see a man so little dressed in a maiden's chamber with which he was angry but he left it at hanworth the queen told mrs ashley that my lord admiral looked in at the gallery window and saw my lady elizabeth with her arms about a man's neck upon which mrs ashley questioned her charge regarding it and the lady elizabeth denied it weeping and bade them ax all her women if there were any man who came to her excepting grindal my lady elizabeth schoolmaster howbeit mrs ashley thought the queen being jealous did feign the story to the intent that mrs ashley might take more heed in the proceedings of lady elizabeth and the lord admiral the governess added that her husband mr ashley who it seems was a relative of anne boleyn did often give warning that he feared the princess did bear some affection to the lord admiral as she would sometimes blush when she heard him spoken of elizabeth herself told perry the cofferer of her household that she feared the admiral loved her but too well and the queen was jealous of them both and that suspecting the frequent access of the admiral to her she came suddenly upon them when they were alone he having her in his arms queen catherine was greatly offended with them both and very sharply reproved the princess's governess for her neglect of her duty to her royal pupil in permitting her to fall into such reprehensible freedom of behavior conjugal jealousy apart catherine parr had great cause for anger and alarm for the princess was under her especial care and if aught but good befell her at the tender age of fifteen great blame would of course attach to herself especially if the admiral for whom she had already outraged popular opinion by marrying with indecorous precipitation were the author of her young stepdaughter's ruin it is just possible that the actual guilt incurred by the unhappy queen catherine howard in her girlhood did not amount to a greater degree of impropriety than the unseemly romping which took place almost every day at chelsea between the youthful princess elizabeth and the bold bad husband of catherine parr 
it does not appear that any violent or injurious expressions were used by Catherine Parr, but she saw the expediency of separating her household from that of the princess, and acted upon it without delay. There is no reason to believe that she cherished vindictive feelings against Elizabeth, for she continued to correspond with her in a friendly and affectionate manner, as the princess herself testifies in a playful and somewhat familiar letter which is here subjoined. Lady Elizabeth to the Queen. Although your highness's letters be most joyful to me, in absence, yet considering what pain it is for you to write, your grace being so sickly, your commendations were enough in my lord's letter. I must rejoice at your health, with the well-liking of the country, with my humble thanks that your grace wished me with you till I was weary of that country. Your highness were like to be cumbered if I should not depart till I was weary of being with you. Although it were the worst soil in the world, your presence would make it pleasant. I cannot reprove my lord for not doing your commendations in his letter, for he did it, and although he had not, yet I will not complain on him, for he shall be diligent to give me knowledge from time to time, how his busy child doth, and if I were at his birth, no doubt I would see him beaten, for the trouble he hath put you to. Master Denny and my lady, with humble thanks, prayeth most entirely for your grace, praying the Almighty God to send you a most lucky deliverance, and my mistress wisheth no less, giving your highness most humble thanks for her commendations. Written with very little leisure, this last day of July, your humble daughter, Elizabeth. This letter, dated within six weeks of the Queen's death, affords convincing evidence she was on amicable terms with her royal stepdaughter. She had not only written kindly to Elizabeth, expressing a wish that she were with her at Sudley, but she had even encouraged the Admiral to write, when not well enough herself, to continue the correspondence, a proof that Catherine Parr, though she had considered it proper to put a stop to the dangerous familiarity with which her husband had presumed to demean himself towards her royal charge, did not regard it as anything beyond a passing folly. But even if her heart had been torn with a temporary pang of jealousy, she was too amiable to blight the opening flower of Elizabeth's life, by revealing a feeling so injurious to the honor of the youthful princess. It was not, however, Elizabeth, but the young and early wise Lady Jane Grey, who became the companion of Catherine Parr at Sudley Castle, when she withdrew thither to await the birth of her child. Lady Jane continued with Queen Catherine, till the melancholy sequel of her fond hopes of maternity. Sudley Castle was royal property, that had been granted to the Admiral, by the Regency, on the death of King Henry. It was suspected that lands thus illegally obtained, were held on a doubtful tenure. One day, when Queen Catherine was walking in Sudley Park, with her husband and Sir Robert Turwitt, she said, Master Turwitt, will you see the king, when he cometh to full age, will call in his lands again, as fast as they be now given away from him. Mary, said Master Turwitt, then will Sudley Castle be gone from your Lord Admiral. Mary, rejoined the queen, I do assure you he intends to offer to restore them, and give them back freely when the time comes. Queen Catherine had a princely retinue in attendance upon her, in her retirement at Sudley Castle, of ladies-in-waiting, maids of honor, and gentlewomen-in-ordinary, besides the appointments for her expected nursery and lying-in chamber, and more than a hundred and twenty gentlemen of her household, and yeomen of the guard. 
she had several of the most learned men among the lights of the reformation for her chaplains and she caused divine worship to be performed twice a day or oftener in her house notwithstanding the distaste of the admiral who not only refused to attend these devotional exercises himself but proved a great let and hindrance to all the pious regulations his royal consort strove to establish this opposition came with an ill grace from seymour who for political purposes professed to be a reformer and had shared largely in the plunder of the old church but in his heart he had no more liking for protestant prayers and sermons than queen catherine's deceased lord king henry a few days before her confinement catherine received the following friendly letter from the princess mary madam although i have troubled your highness lately with sundry letters yet that notwithstanding seeing my lord marquess who hath taken the pains to come to me at this present intendeth to see your grace shortly i could not be satisfied without writing to the same and especially because i purpose to-morrow with the help of god to begin my journey towards norfolk where i shall be farther from your grace which journey i have intended since whitsuntide but lack of health hath stayed me all the while which although it be as yet unstable nevertheless i am enforced to remove for a time hoping with god's grace to return again about michaelmas at which time or shortly after i trust to hear good success of your grace's condition and in the meantime shall desire much to hear of your health which i pray almighty god to continue and increase to his pleasure as much as your own heart can desire and thus with my most humble commendations to your highness i take my leave of the same desiring your grace to take the pain to make my commendations to my lord admiral from beaulieu the ninth of august your highness's most humble and assured loving daughter mary the lord marquess mentioned by mary was queen catherine's only brother william parr marquess of northampton his guilty and unhappy wife the heiress of essex was then at sudley castle under some restraint and in the keeping of her royal sister-in-law this unpleasant charge must have greatly disquieted the last troubled months of catherine parr's life on the thirtieth of august fifteen forty eight catherine parr gave birth at sudley castle to the infant whose appearance had been so fondly anticipated both by seymour and herself it was a girl and though both parents had confidently expected a boy no disappointment was expressed on the contrary seymour in a transport of paternal pride wrote so eloquent a description of the beauty of the new-born child to his brother the duke of somerset that the latter added the following kind postscript to a stern letter of expostulation and reproof which he had just finished writing to him when he received his joyous communication after our hearty commendations we are right glad to understand by your letters that the queen your bedfellow hath a happy hour and escaping all danger hath made you the father of so pretty a daughter and although if it had pleased god it would have been both to us and we suppose also to you a more joy and comfort if it had this the first-born been a son yet the escape of the danger and the prophecy and good hansel of this to a great sort of happy sons which as you write we trust no less than to be true is no small joy and comfort to us as we are sure it is to you and to her grace also to whom you shall make again our hearty commendations with no less gratulation of such good success 
thus we bid you heartily farewell from sion the first of september fifteen forty eight your loving brother e somerset from this letter it is evident that lord thomas had been casting horoscopes and consulting fortune-tellers who had promised him long life and a great sort of sons it is difficult to imagine that the admiral however faulty his morale might be on some points could cherish evil intentions against her who had just caused his heart to overflow for the first time with the ineffable raptures of paternity the charge of his having caused the death of queen catherine by poison can only be regarded as the fabrication of his enemies neither is there the slightest reason to believe that the unfavorable symptoms which appeared on the third day after her delivery were either caused or aggravated by his unkindness on the contrary his manner towards her when she was evidently suffering under the grievous irritability of mind and body incidental to puerperal fever appears from the deposition of lady tyrwhitt one of the most faithful and attached of her ladies to have been soothing and affectionate let the reader judge from the subjoined record of that sad scene in the chamber of the departing queen two days before the death of the queen says lady tyrwhitt at my coming to her in the morning she asked me where i had been so long and said unto me that she did fear such things in herself that she was sure she could not live i answered as i thought that i saw no likelihood of death in her she then having my lord admiral by the hand and divers others standing by spake these words partly as i took idly or meaning in delirium my lady tyrwhitt i am not well handled for those that be about me care not for me but stand laughing at my grief and the more good i will to them the less good they will to me whereunto my lord admiral answered why sweetheart i would you no hurt and she said to him again aloud no my lord i think so and immediately she said to him in his ear but my lord you have given me many shrewd taunts these words i perceived she spake with good memory and very sharply and earnestly for her mind was sore disquieted my lord admiral perceiving that i heard it called me aside and asked me what she said and i declared it plainly to him then he consulted with me that he would lie down on the bed by her to look if he could pacify her unquietness with gentle communication whereunto i agreed and by the time he had spoken three or four words to her she answered him roundly and sharply saying my lord i would have given a thousand marks to have had my full talk with hewick dr hewick the first day i was delivered but i durst not for displeasing you and i hearing that perceived her trouble to be so great that my heart would serve me to hear no more such like communications she had with him the space of an hour which they did hear that sat by her bedside it is probable that the alarming charge in catherine's life had been caused not by any sinister practices against her life but by whispers previously circulated among the gossips in her lying-in chamber relating to her husband's passion for her royal stepdaughter and his intention of aspiring to the hand of the princess in case of her own decease her malady was pure pearl fever a sense of intolerable wrong was constantly expressed by her yet she never explained the cause of her displeasure she alluded to her delivery but strange to say never mentioned her infant wild and gloomy fantasies had superseded the first sweet gushings of maternal love in her troubled bosom 
and she appeared unconscious of the existence of the babe she had so fondly anticipated this symptom with ladies in her situation is generally the forerunner of death on the very day when the scene occurred described by lady Turwitt, catherine parr dictated her will which is still extant in the prerogative office it is dated september fifth fifteen forty eight and it is to the following effect that she then lying on her deathbed, sick of body but of good mind and perfect memory and discretion being persuaded and perceiving the extremity of death to approach her gives all to her married espouse and husband wishing them to be a thousand times more in value than they were or been there are no legacies and the witnesses are two well-known historical characters robert hewick m d and john parkhurst this is a nuncupative or verbal will it was not signed by the dying queen which we find was usually the case with deathbed royal wills at that era the witnesses were persons of high character and even sacred authority in a sick chamber being the physician and the chaplain the latter became subsequently a bishop of the reformed church highly distinguished for his christian virtues in after life parkhurst always mentioned catherine parr with great regard as his most gentle mistress was it likely that such a man would perjure himself for the sake of enriching seymour yet the affectionate language of the will is inconsistent with the suspicions and reproaches which lady Turwitt affirmed that the dying queen threw out against her lord on the very day of its date namely september fifth fifteen forty eight both these facts are depositions on oath made by two most respectable witnesses on the same day a partisan might charge either lady Turwitt or bishop parkhurst with direct perjury and say that catherine parr could not have spoken according to both depositions but the physiologist comes to the aid of the historian and from lady Turwitt's hint of delirium will truly allow that a wandering brain could utter such and many other inconsistencies as Lady Turwitt affirms that she entered the Queen's apartment in the morning, when the Lord Admiral was by the bedside, with a patient's hand in his, it is likely that she came in just after the will had been made. Let us consider the state of Catherine Parr's mind at this juncture. Dr. Hewick had recently revealed to her her danger, her words, being persuaded of the approach of death, in her will, distinctly intimate this fact, the result was an instant testamentary deposition of her property in which she at the same time exerted her peculiar privilege as queen dowager of bequeathing her personal effects though a married woman and showed her passionate love to her husband for she left him all wishing them her goods a thousand times more than they have or been her words are evidently written as uttered with all imperfections he was the sole object of her thoughts her newborn infant was forgotten a lapse of memory on the part of its mother which doomed it to beggary before it could speak all these circumstances certainly occurred in a short space of time and doubtless occasioned great hurry of spirits the queen's ladies knew not of her danger lady Turwitt says she did not the queen in her will says she herself had been persuaded of it then came the revulsion of feeling the queen on recollection was not reconciled to death and began to question angrily whether she had a right to die whether her death was not caused by carelessness or malice lady Turwitt saw she spoke deliriously her mind wandered 
and former jealousies and affronts hitherto successfully concealed biased her speech she thought that her husband to whom she had bequeathed her all was exulting in her removal she fancied and that part of the narrative plainly reveals delirium for such fancies are symptomatic that he she loved so well stood deriding her misery he acted considerately soothing her as a nurse soothes a sick wayward child but his manner as described by lady turwit was that of a person in possession of intellect humouring the sad vagaries of a mind diseased catherine parr expired on the second day after the date of her will being the seventh after the birth of her child she was only in the thirty-sixth year of her age having survived her royal husband henry the eighth by one year six months and eight days her character is thus recorded by a contemporary quoted by stripe she was endued with a pregnant wittiness joined with right wonderful grace of elegance studiously diligent in acquiring knowledge as well of human discipline as also of the holy scriptures of incomparable chastity which she kept not only from all spot but from all suspicion by avoiding all occasions of idleness and condemning vain pastimes further also in his church history panegyrizes this queen in the highest terms of commendation the official announcement of queen catherine parr's death together with the programme of her funeral is copied from a curious contemporary manuscript in the college of arms lady jane grey who was with queen catherine at sudley castle at the time of her death officiated at her funeral solemnity as chief mourner which is certified in this document abbreviate of the interment of the lady catherine parr queen dowager late wife to king henry the eighth and after wife to sir thomas lord seymour of sudley and high admiral of england item on wednesday the fifth of september between two and three of the o'clock in the morning died the aforesaid lady late queen dowager at the castle of sudley in gloucestershire fifteen forty eight and lieth buried in the chapel of the said castle item she was sered and chested in lead accordingly and so remained in her privy chamber until things were in readiness the chapel was hung with black cloth garnished with scutcheons of marriages namely king henry the eighth and her in pale under the crown her own in lozenge under the crown also the arms of the lord admiral and hers in pale without the crown the rails were covered with black cloth for the mourners to sit within with stools and cushions accordingly and two lighted scutcheons stood upon the corpse during the service the order in proceeding to the chapel first two conductors in black with black staves then gentlemen and esquires then knights then officers of the household with their white staves then the gentlemen ushers then somerset herald in the tabard coat then the corpse borne by six gentlemen in black gowns with their hoods on their heads then eleven staff torches borne on each side by yeomen round about the corpse and at each corner a knight for assistance four with their hoods on their heads and then lady jane daughter to the lord marquess dorset chief mourner her train borne up by a young lady then six other lady mourners two and two then yeomen three and three in rank then all other follow the manner of the service in the church item when the corpse was set within the rails and the mourners placed 
the whole choir began and sung certain psalms in english and read three lessons and after the third lesson the mourners according to their degrees and that which is a custom offered into the alms-box and when they had done all other as gentlemen or gentlewomen that would the offering done dr coverdale the queen's almoner began his sermon which was very good and godly and in one place thereof he took occasion to declare unto the people how they should none there think say or spread abroad that the offering which was there done was done anything to benefit the dead but for the poor only and also the lights which were carried and stood about the corpse were for the honour of the person and for none other intent nor purpose and so went through with his sermon and made a godly prayer and the whole church answered and prayed the same with him in the end the sermon done the corpse was buried during which time the choir sung te deum in english and this done the mourners dined and the rest returned homeward again all which aforesaid was done in the morning this curious document presents the reader with the form of the first royal funeral solemnized according to protestant rites queen catherine's epitaph was written in latin by her chamberlain dr parkhurst afterwards bishop of norwich the translation by an anonymous author is elegant in this new tomb the royal catherine lies flower of her sex renowned great and wise a wife by every nuptial virtue known a faithful partner once of henry's throne to seymour next her plighted her hand she yields seymour whose neptune's trident justly wields from him a beauteous daughter blessed her arms an infant copy of her parents charms when now seven days this infant flower had bloomed heaven in its wrath the mother's soul resumed the erudite writer who has collected many interesting particulars in the archaeologica of the life of this queen says she was tormented and broken-hearted with the pride of her sister-in-law and the ill-temper of her husband whom she adored to the last no instance of personal incivility or harshness on the part of the lord admiral towards catherine parr has however been recorded without indeed the shrewd taunts she mentioned in her delirium were matters of fact if so like many other ill-tempered husbands he was resolved no one should revile his wife but himself for he was wont to affirm with his usual terrible oath that no one should speak ill of the queen or if he knew it he would take his fist to the ears of those who did from the lowest to the highest the charge of his having hastened her death is not only without the slightest proof but really opposed to the general evidences of history the fatal termination of the queen's illness was not anticipated even by her husband and how great a shock it was to him may be gathered from the fact that in his first perplexity all his political plans were disarranged and he wrote to the marquess of dorset to send for lady jane grey as he meant to dismiss his household but before a month was over he wrote again to the marquess saying by my last letters written at a time when with the queen's highness's death i was so amazed that i had small regard either to myself or my doings and partly then thinking that my great loss must presently have constrained me to have dissolved my whole house i offer to send my lady jane unto you whensoever ye send for her but having more deeply considered the matter he found he could continue his establishment where shall remain he adds not only the gentlewomen of the queen's highness's privy chamber 
but also the maids which wait at large and other women who were about her in her lifetime with a hundred and twenty gentlemen and yeomen the ambition of lord admiral seymour still projected placing a royal partner at the head of his establishment at present he invited his aged mother lady seymour to superintend this vast household and he concluded his letter to dorset with the assurance that if he would restore lady jane grey as his inmate lady seymour should treat her as if she were her daughter after this letter seymour came to bradgate and says lord dorset he was so earnestly in hand with me and my wife that he would have no nay so that we were contented for her to return to his house at the same time and place he renewed the favorite project of the deceased queen and himself that edward the sixth should marry lady jane grey adding that if he could get the king at liberty this marriage should take place thus the fair girl was restored to the guardianship of lord admiral seymour and actually remained under his roof till his arrest and imprisonment in the tower End of section 7